0: Hello. Hey. <laughs> hey. <laughs> very, very to the point. And uh, hello to everyone who's sticking around. Um, and a special shout out to Martha. I miss you, and and I hope you're doing well. Um, and. I'm glad to be spending time with you, Michael.
1: Yeah, Christopher, it's great. We never get to spend time together anymore.
0: <laughs> no, we're going to have some private time in a very public setting. That's right. Just us in a few of our closest friends. <laughs> um, but first of all, congratulations. Thank you. Beast Associate. yeah. 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 You know, it, you know where I come from. These are the times we would go to McDonald's, we would go to Baskin Robbins, we would go to some buffet house, and we would like celebrate like these demarcations of our journeys in life. So, yeah. well,
1: Julia said that she's looking to get a reservation for brunch somewhere. So, uh, if I'm lucky, you know, maybe Cook Shop. So, you never know. Oh, I know Cook Shop, and Cook Shop is great.
0: I fingers crossed. <laughs> That that you can get in there because you deserve it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I appreciate your sermon today. Um, and I appreciate uh, how you tied in, of course, this week's events to sort of launch in, into yeah. y- your thoughts there. Um, what a dramatic week!
1: Um, yeah, I mean, it was just it was just crazy, just crazy. I couldn't. Be- I was just sort of stuck watching the news in, on Wednesday evening and just couldn't believe my eyes.
0: Yeah, same. It's like was on repeat on my television, but also in my head and my heart and just contemplating what happens next. Um, And in your sermon, you said a word that really does. I love this word. Flourish. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. um i i just love the way it sounds and i love sort of its intention yeah. uh, would you mind like saying a little bit more about what this word is
1: yeah i mean flourishing i think is what god intends for uh, humanity you know we were uh, created to live in a garden where we had all of our needs met and lived in harmony with one another and with mm. the creation and with god and i think that, that a word for that is flourishing and this Psalm that um, my you know my ancestors uh, would would sing and inscribe on their their art uh, about the the one who is planted in the courts of the Lord will flourish there, really means you know like uh, thriving and um, and living into a new a new home and I think that's what we really need in our country right now is a season of flourishing. Like I said, I think I think flourishing is the condition that that peace creates, but you can't have that without some kind of trust. And I really feel like we've lost uh, a significant capacity to trust in our country today, largely in part uh, as a result of the continuing trauma of having trust violated by people who should be trustworthy.
0: Um, I totally understood. A trust could be a lifelong issue and lesson for for all of us, and, and hearing you describe uh, your your thoughts unflourish it. It helps me to remember the concept of creation and to create, and yeah. what a positive thing that is. And when in doubt, I think the best, most effective thing one can do is to create something.
1: Yeah, wow. absolutely.
0: Yeah. To we're, be-
1: made, we're created in the image of God, who is you know the 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 source and creator of all, and so it's like it's part of our imprint of God's image in our lives to be creative people
0: mm, i love it a little side note i thought of you uh, these past couple of weeks because i actually created a nativity
1: <laughs> Whoa, Amazing.
0: <laughs> it is amazing and it's the most adorable thing ever but i thought of you because you talked about the nativity you grew up with so sometime i'll, I'll have to share with you what it is that. I love that. I geek out about it. But one of the reasons we're here, uh, Reverend Chris, I want to see, I will share it with you. Um, um, but the reason we're here, one of the reasons is for a little segment called Ask a, Theoli- the- Ask a Theologian.
1: Yes, that's Great. me.
0: <laughs> so just to get us started, um, if you know you had to give like a brief definition, what is theology? Yeah,
1: well, theology is at its heart uh, the study of God, and I uh, mean that's what the two the two compound Greek words mean. Theos means God, and ology is the study of something. And so, theologians are people who have committed their lives to studying God, and that means um, you know developing uh, an appreciation of Scripture and the history of the Church, and and learning how to think about God, but. But really, you know, because God is, uh, is uh, you know, the study of God isn't like any other subject. I tell my students this all the time that studying theology isn't like studying, you know, rocks or architecture or even poetry. It's really it's you are uh, as you study God, you're being known by God and you're knowing God as a as a person. And so um, the, the heart of theology is really not just to know God, but to, to love God through the process.
0: Mm, It sounds a little bit like sharing yourself, too, or getting to know yourself and allowing yourself to be seen as well. Totally. Oh, my gosh. Um, So for those who are listening um, there, this would be a time that you could chime in and ask a theologian anything that's on your heart. Um, I'm just going to read this. Uh, Katie Wren said, I'll read the phrase, fear God, but I know Jesus often said do not be afraid. And I'll often consider love and fear as opposites. I'll repeat that. I'll here read the phrase fear God, but I know Jesus often said, do not be afraid. Yeah. Often consider love and fear as opposites. So how do you think we fear God in the context of loving God? Good question.
1: Wow. That's a really good question. Way way to start with a hard one. (laughs) uh, Right, right into it. So, um, it, uh, you know, it's a, it's a kind of language problem actually, because, uh, you're, you're totally right. Not only did Jesus say, uh, you know, not to fear, like to his disciples, when he appeared to them on the sea of Galilee and calmed the storm, or came up to Peter walking on the water. Um, but it's one of the most commonly, um, uh, written commands in the Bible to, to not fear God. Whenever God shows up to a, a person, uh, in the old Testament or in, in the, in the new Testament, well, one of the first things that said is don't don't be afraid. It's it's okay. Fear not. <laughs> so God doesn't want us to be fearful and kind of cowering and and not not able to sort of approach God when God shows up. But um, the the fear of the Lord that we're talking about, which is like you know in, in the Proverbs where there's a a proverb that says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Mm-hmm. And the fear in that context means more like. Uh, high regard, have a, a, a respect or, or honor. So, uh, you know, when we approach God, we do so kind of with two sides of the same coin. The one side says that we come to God boldly uh, through the work of Jesus and with the, the power of the Holy Spirit, but we also have a, a sort of certain respect and honor for God. So God is both, uh, you know, this this like very close, intimate parent figure in Scripture, and also God is the the, the sovereign Lord of the whole cosmos. So um, you know we we have this kind of two sided relationship to God. So holy fear uh, means to have high regard, but the unholy fear is to kind of pull away. And so I think I think of it in terms of like how the energy flows. And so mm-hmm. if if the if our fear of God pushes us away, that's that's not what God wants. But if our fear of God draws us in, that's a healthy a healthy regard.
0: Wow, great answer, Katerine. I hope that uh, uh, satisfies you. What it makes me think of too is, um, uh, you know, sort of the dualities uh, that exist. And one of my favorite dualities is like a gratitude and appreciation. And wow. they sound like the same things, but I often think that gratitude is about what comes to you and appreciation is how you show value to something else. Cool. Um, so those like opposites that work together. Yeah. Um, hey, here's a one from Brian. Uh, Michael, Did you always want to be a theologian?
1: Um, Kind of, yeah. (laughs) Actually, yeah, Yeah, I kind of am living my best life. That's amazing. You know, when I was, uh, you know, when I was a young kid, uh, you know, like an er early teens, maybe 12 or 13, I had... um, I just I found myself really falling in love with with the Bible and, and really interested in the, the world of the Bible and um, and the kind of the the kind of way that we think about God and, and how that's that's sort of changed and shaped by cultures that we live in. And um, so uh, I I knew very early on that I, I wanted to spend my life um thinking about these things and and teaching others about them and i I got into theological education as a um as a teacher in a seminary context because um, I, I I really value um, public Christian ministry and public Christian leadership, and and I think that it's one of the most important things that a person can do. Not everyone's called to it, and nor should everyone be called to it. But for those who are called to public ministry, it's a it's an important thing. You really hold like the the wet clay of a person's heart in your hands. And mm. I've never worked with clay before, you know that that you always get fingerprints on it. Even if you're, you're spinning something on the wheel, your fingerprints are in, in, imparted on it. And so those are, those are permanent and in some ways indelible. And so I want the people who put their hands on the wet clay hearts of the people in the church to be well-trained, to be careful, to, to, to have authentic faith, and to know what, what it is that they're getting themselves into. And so as a professional theologian, I, I get, I, I'm involved in helping to shape and train leaders for the future of the church, and that, uh, that's really important to me.
0: Oh, I think that's an important analogy Uh, as a theater person. It's not often, but there are some projects that I work on where I say these exact words. I leave you, I part you, but you have put a fingerprint on my heart. Like that's how touched I feel. So that's just very symbiotic right there. Um, Here's a question from Martha Lee. And she's Mm -hmm. saying, Michael, can you explain the Trinity? (laughs) (laughs) i'll I'll make it easy on you. In layman's terms, in three okay. sentences or less. This sounds like a challenge, but
1: three sentences or less. <laughs> uh, the Trinity is uh, three persons with one substance. And so uh, we there is um, there is one God, but that God exists as three uh, related but distinct. Persons in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that's conceptually what it means. And it, it's kind of, uh, that, that's the long and the short of it. So it's, it's, not, uh, it's not three gods. It's not um, one God with three faces. Uh, it's not one God that sort of does three different things. Um, when God the Father creates, the Son and the Spirit are involved in creation. When God the Son redeems, the Father and the Spirit are involved in redemption. When God the Holy Spirit sustains, the Father and the Son are involved in that sustaining work. So it's they're, they're, they're co-equal, they're co-involved in the actions that they have but we we know them to be uh, to be separate uh, but connected persons, and one of the ways that I think about this is is a little bit in terms of um, of salvation history, uh, and that um, you know the God as Trinity uh, is is a is a concept uh, that is sort of gradually made known to humanity. Um, there the Trinity, the word Trinity never exists in the Bible. It was coined by uh, a second century church father named Tertullian, who was a theologian and uh, and priest in Carthage in north Africa. and uh, And he described he used the word Trinity to describe the three persons of of God. the the example of the Trinity isn't really clear in any sort of sense um, in the Old Testament, though we could kind of read into it if if we were of that sort of persuasion. It becomes clear in the New Testament, Principally, as people, uh, the first Christians are trying to figure out um, what it means to to see God so profoundly at work in Jesus. And, you know, um, and I know that I'm like way beyond three sentences, but I'm going to keep going because I'm a theologian. Martha Lee, girl, you're getting your layman's terms, but
0: not less than three sentences. Yeah, yeah. Carry
1: on. Okay. So, uh, so Jesus and his followers were all Jews and, and Jews are profoundly monotheistic. I mean, there's the, there's one God, there are no other gods. There's no division within God. Um, yes, God, uh, there might be sort of metaphorical language to talk about God's spirit, but there was really no sense in Judaism in the first century or even today of like a Trinity or duality within God. Yet, very early on, Jesus's followers see in Jesus. Uh, a, a degree of godness that they that causes them to worship him, and so you hear about, you read in the gospels about his disciples falling at their feet and giving him worship, and Jesus accepting that worship, and the only kinds of things that are allowed to be worshipped are gods or in Judaism is God. So very quickly, the experience of Jesus by his followers led them to believe that Jesus wasn't just a holy teacher or a really good man or, you know, a great chef, but actually God. And this was a mind-blowing thing that took decades to kind of you know, unravel and figure out. And then similarly, when they encountered the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, they recognized that there was something so intense and um, life-changing about the experience of receiving the Holy Spirit that that too is God. And so very early on, Christians are baptizing in the name of the one God who's known as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, giving worship to the one God whose name is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and praying to God the Father uh, through the work of Jesus Christ by way of the Holy Spirit. And so the Trinity is very much a kind of fun, like a functional part of Christian life, even though it's a kind of mystery and hard to get your head around. It's something that we we experience and something that, that really shapes the, the practice of prayer for Christians.
0: Thank you for that response. Martha, I have a feeling you knew that would happen by the way you phrased your question. <laughs> so thorough. Um, here's another question. Oh, did I lose it? Oh, great. Um, this is from uh, Reverend Christine, actually, the world has changed so much since ancient times. And I'm wondering how the Bible can be applicable to our lives when there are situations that the people of the Bible didn't wrestle with.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, you know, one of the, um, the things that, um, that differentiates um, the Episcopal Church from more um, kind of, uh, I guess you could say sort of conservative churches in a sense, although the conservative liberal binary is not necessarily helpful, but for the sake of argument, is that we, we aren't, uh, we don't believe in biblical inerrancy and we're not biblical literalists uh, because the word of God isn't, isn't the Bible. It is the word of God is, is Jesus, right? The, the, the Jesus, the beginning of John one says in the beginning was the word and the word was God and was, was with God. And this is referring to Jesus. Now the Bible uh, expresses, and maybe we could say contains the word of God, but really there are three ways in which God's word exists. It's first as the, the eternal second person of the Trinity, the word of God as Jesus, the word of God in the manger, who is the, the incarnate word, Jesus Christ, the word of God that is, that is conveyed through scripture. And I guess the fourth one would be the word of God preached. So um, God's word is this dynamic um, thing that God is involved in, which is why when we study the Bible, we're not just studying any old book. We are, we are engaging with God's word that is kind of happening to us. It's like active speech. And so we're kind of part, we participate in this dialogue. All of this to say that the Bible is extraordinarily important, vibrant, and alive. And uh, it's not a static book that we just read. Uh, so we're always kind of reinterpreting it um, as we kind of compare and contrast our own world with the world of the text. And then this long history of interpretation between us and when the text was written. And I like to, you know, when I, I grew up, um, in, in especially in my teens and very early twenties, in a, in a very kind of m- much more lit- literalistic uh, conservative, theological tradition. And one of the things that we were really trying to do is it was to go back to the world of the text. If I could only like accurately translate the Bible from Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic, if I could only really like totally reconstruct what that temple looked like, I'd understand the sacrificial system. And, and the problem is there, there is no way to to go back in a time machine and to understand another person's world fully. You're always looking through the medium of time. And I liken it to, I used to have a fish tank and it had a little little, uh, treasure chest on the bottom of the tank. And if I wanted to grab hold of the treasure chest, I had to stick my hand in the fish tank. (laughs) I'd have to immerse my hand all the way to pull it out. And that's kind of like how, what it's like to read and interpret ancient texts. You got to stick your hand in the fish tank of time and you're going to get wet in the process. So there's no pure original reading. Everything is always interpretation. And what's amazing is that God sends us the Holy Spirit to guide us in our interpretation of scripture. And God has given us the tradition of the church to help keep our our interpretation of scripture within kind of the safe bounds of orthodoxy. So while it could be a little scary and you could be like, oh my gosh, people can read the Bible and make it into anything with the Holy Spirit and with tradition, and, and the use of human reason, um, we are able to stay within a kind of orthodox band and stay within kind of these, the, the safe zone of interpretation.
0: I love it. This is so thorough. Oh, my gosh. We've got some backlogs of questions here. Okay, okay. I'll try to be quick. Here's one. I have long thought when praying. This is from Amy. Uh, thy when praying thy will be done was me submitting to what was about to happen, that what happens equals God's will. I don't know if that's a question or a statement, but there you have it, Amy. Oh, but there is also sin and disobedience. Yeah. And we yearn for this world to align with Shalom. Can yeah.
1: You talk about this. Yeah. So, um, you know, this is, this is kind of all lumped into like, why is there evil and suffering in the world? Does God answer prayer anyway? Does God have a plan? Is there a perfect plan? Am I am I on a track heading toward that plan, or did I get diverted? And like this whole thing, and, and these are all really kind of helpful way, helpful questions for for thinking through the kind of complexities of human life. What's interesting, what I what I teach my students is a couple things about this. The, the first is, um, you know, we uh, we need to be careful that the the God that we have in mind isn't just the the God that we want, uh, but is actually the the God that is, and there's oftentimes a difference between the God that I want and the God that is, that is the God that I want is one who, if I pray, uh, it's answered like a genie in the bottle, uh, <laughs> as a perfect plan for me that I can't deviate from that, uh, doesn't, you know, doesn't allow pandemics to happen or, you know, crazy people to become presidents of the United States and all kinds of things. That's the, that's the God I want. Unfortunately, uh, for me, the God that has revealed God's self to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit through the creation, through the calling of Israel, through the sending of God's Son, through the, the, the work of Scripture and the Holy Spirit and the church, th- this God is one who has a, places a huge value on freedom. And I think it's probably because one of the things that we talk about God is that God is ultimately free to do to to be able to do what what this God wills. And God gives something of that freedom to God's creation, namely to us. And so the the gift of human freedom is a two edged sword, because on the one hand, only with freedom am I able to love I can't love God if I'm simply commanded to love. You know, love Love is one of those things that, um, you know, you, I can tell you to smile. I can tell you to open your eyes. I can tell you to, to, to wrinkle your nose, but I can't tell you to love. Commanding love requires you, or asking for love requires a response, a free will response. And so God wants us to love God because God loves us. And this is this kind of imaging of God in us as we uh, we offer freely God's love. That's the good side of the sword. But the other side is terrible things can happen. We can sin, we can destroy the creation, we can be terrible to one another. Um, but this, this evil is the is, is the kind of logical cost of having the freedom to love. And what God is doing throughout the whole of God's story with humanity, from, from the very beginning to the work of Christ to the present day until it's fully made, realized uh, when Christ returns, is is bringing this kind of beautiful, perfect world of God's love, what, what we call in kind of in human language, heaven, bringing it closer and closer to earth. So that there are places where it touches, where we see justice and flourishing and peace and love and places where it's not yet aligned. And with God's Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus, we work to make alignment points where God's kingdom and our earth become closer and closer together until finally they become the same thing. It doesn't mean that we make the world a perfect place on our own. God is at work in that. It doesn't mean that there's no such thing as suffering, but it does mean that we are working to bring justice and peace and truth and beauty and love into the world, making it more and more like the kingdom that God intends it to be love
0: it Amy I hope that was helpful it makes me think
1: I can't make you love
0: me yes yes <laughs> you can't make your heart feel something it won't anyway <laughs> my own inspiration here's another question I'll I think we have about two more questions here um from Gregory hi Gregory I hope you're still there um who are two to three figures? who have deeply formed your theological thinking? I have this
1: same exact question. Wow. So uh, living people, uh, uh, Rowan Williams, former Archbishop of Canterbury, um, is an English theologian and uh, mystic and poet and uh, priest. And his work, uh, I, I, I read it in uh, in seminary, when I was going through a really hard time with my faith, and uh, you know, seminary um, seminary can be really toxic to a person's faith. And we we often don't tell people this when they enroll, but uh, there's a certain amount of deconstruction that happens. You have this like received faith that you get from childhood or at, at adulthood, or it's sort of it like works for you, and then you see that there's like a lot of different ways to look at things, and like a really kind of messy process for a lot of these things that we believe to come into to come <laughs> to formation. It sounds like the process. Of- of
0: becoming an actor you yeah. come in feeling one way and they totally destruct,
1: destruct rip you apart and, and and i you know and i was in this like you know what do i believe anymore and then um i read something by rowan williams about the resurrection of jesus and it was just so beautiful and so powerful and it, it really helped me to kind of believe again so rowan williams is one um I, uh, I also have always you know, really enjoyed reading the, the fourth century, fourth and fifth century uh, Christian writer, St. Augustine of Hippo, uh, and his work uh, called The Confessions. It may be one of the first pieces of autobiographical writing in Europe, and, um, and it's a, a beautiful reflection on the kind of inner life of faith. And some theologians treat it as a kind of like a textbook of like, this is what he's saying about God, but it's much more like a, a long written prayer and reflection. And I really kind of value that sort of bringing together of spirituality and um, philosophical theology to sort of into in, in bear into the kind of inner space. Mm-hmm. And then I suppose um, if uh, I would think of another one. Um, He's not particularly inspiring, but I I just really value the kind of clarity of his thought. And that's another Anglican theologian called uh, Anthony Thistleton. And he's uh, also a living uh, priest and theologian in the UK. um, And I found his work in kind of interpreting scripture uh, dealing with the thinking about wisdom and also systematic theology to be really kind of um, helpful to kind of shape my own thinking. So those are three, three people. Unfortunately, they're all men. I could definitely think of uh, of important women who have shaped my thinking, Catherine Tanner, Sarah Coakley, uh, um, uh, Catherine Sondrigger, um, you know, so on and so forth. But um, those are three that kind of pop to mind right now. Well, that's
0: great. Um, here's another question from Hyatt. Uh, can you speak to what frameworks theologians have proposed for to understand how Christians should think about their relationship to political citizenship? Boy. Oh, Hi, what have you done? <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I'm breaking up? What? we uh, uh, uh. broken our theologian. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's really, really tough. It's really, really tough because – um, i mean christianity um, christianity was was never uh de- designed to to be like part of the power structure. Um, it, is, it was initially very much a, a protest movement within Judaism against uh, a, a corrupt um, religious hierarchy and a, an a, and a, and a, uh, occupying imperial force in the form of Rome. So Jesus's political teaching uh, is radical uh, for a couple of reasons. One, because he, he understands the plight of the oppressed and the poor, those who are having to pay taxes when taxes are, are excessive, those who are placed out of the margins, those who don't have a voice within religious community, those who don't have a a kind of a a role in in helping to shape their own uh, destiny or domestic life because they're under either the thumb of the temple or the thumb of the empire. But also the humanity, yeah, yeah, human experience. Totally. But then Jesus does something that's like really crazy. He also cares about uh, the the hated others because every group has an other out there. Uh, and for for Jews in the first century, it was the Samaritans. So Jesus shows shows care to the Samaritans, to the Syrophoenician woman, and he also cares for the 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 Roman authority. And and the tax collectors. So Jesus is not only like uh, hanging out with with people in in and in, in dire straits who are absolutely at the the last uh, breath of life. He's also going to the equivalent of Montauk and hanging out with people in their beach homes. So Jesus offers a comprehensive vision of what. Society is to look like, which is one where God is present to all people and can be known and loved by all people. Um, and so, I, I think that has to somehow inform our engagement with with politics. Um, it it uh, it is, I think, uh, a, a mistake. To assume that the American nation and the talk of nations or nationhood in the Old Testament has anything to do with each other, uh, the, the 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 label of Christian nation is uh, is 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 just it doesn't exist. Um, the, the, there there is uh, Christians of course are part of national groups, but there is no one single government uh, or form of government. God did not uh, the the Bible never talks about democracy. Actually, the for the majority of the church's history, it's been a rather hierarchical organization, which doesn't mean that hierarchies are necessarily preferable to kind of more communitarian models of governance or government, but that's just how it is. I think um, what God calls us to do is to exercise a lot of judgment in our relationship with the state and with the polis, and to um, to always advocate for justice and inclusion, because those are virtues, I think, of the kingdom of heaven.
0: Right on. Um, I think this may answer uh, Gregory's question. I think this will be our last question uh, uh, from this group. Uh, what are the biggest challenges, opportunities, or opportunities facing the church in the 21st century?
1: Well, um, I think uh, you know we um, we need to change our missional mindsets. I think uh, and really rediscover what it means to be uh, to be able to proclaim the good news and to be engaged in, in evangelism and. And I know that sound, it might sound a little shocking and disorienting from an Episcopal priest, but you know, um, we we live in in the U.S. today. Uh, the the largest um, single religious group is the religiously non-affiliated, um, and um, and there is I think a lot to be shared by religious by by people of faith um, among the spiritual but not religious. Uh, I think that uh, not only um, is the, the 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 gospel of of Jesus Christ uh, the, the, the truth, which I, I really do believe, but I also think it makes a huge difference in your life. And, um, it's made a difference in my life, having a sense that God, God cares for me. God loves me. God's with me, even when I'm in the midst of the, the just pain and agony and disorientation to know that I haven't been abandoned. And then to have this like reserve of these ancient stories where other people have struggled and God has been with them through the very end, that gives me uh resilience and perseverance to live my life. So there's a there's a kind of like there's a truthness to it, and also an extraordinarily applicability to it. And so I think that Christians need to be able to share that because we live in a world where that story isn't told, and there are, are competing narratives that are frequently quite toxic. And secondly, um, and this might be a little a little um, you know a, a, a little edgy or or maybe not, but there's a lot of really terrible theology that is uh, that that is call, that calls itself Christian that frankly is not and it is toxic and it is demonic and if people who are progressives can't stand for for truth uh, all that the world will know about christianity are are prosperity gospel folks and uh, and people who are manipulating politics and social processes for their own adva- ad- advantage and 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 the, the, an entire wing of the church that is doing a lot of harm to the world in the name of Jesus. And Very so good. I think we need to stand up for for the truth, which is God's all inclusive love for humanity and the creation. Wonderful. Well
0: said. Hey, this is extremely successful. Don't go away yet. Um, uh, successful uh, version of. Reverend Christine, this needs to be a thing um, a theologian because we've got a master here who's so wise. Um, I will tell you people in chat are going to want a list of books of the, of the three people that you recommended that were most influential. Um, one lingering question, and then we've got a, a, a fast little, a true game of rapid fire uh, question um, is, who is that one person uh, who like really helped influence you, um, in your growth, like a personal person, not someone. Yeah, you have.
1: yeah. Um, his name is, uh, Ron McClung and he was my pastor when I was in, uh, in high school in a youth group. And then he, uh, eventually, uh, li- like me, we both left that conservative church that we we're in, and he became an ELCA Lutheran pastor, and I became an Episcopal priest, and uh, Ron has continued to be uh, a kind of uh, North Star for me, and uh, I've, I've I really, I valued his friendship, his wisdom, his influence. He preached at my ordination. He's uh, the godfather. He and his wife are the godparents of, of one of our children. We're the godparents of one of his children, and um, he's always remained one of my deepest and closest spiritual friends, so uh, Pastor Ron. That's
0: very clear. Your body language, you turned into a 15 year old. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Did I get my hair back? Oh, (laughs) (laughs) Oh. Oh.
0: Oh, but, but your affection is like, is really true. Um, uh, great. Um, Here's a quick round of true rapid fire questions. All right, I'll be quick. I'll be it's quick. A little fun. Um, you won't have any choice to be quick, but the the, the the rapid fire will go like this. I'll say a statement and you'll repeat the statement, but then you'll fill in the blanks of that. Okay, cool. Number one, I'm so excited about.
1: I am so excited about brunch.
0: <laughs> Two. Um
1: repeat it and then fill it in. I wish someone would please explain. I wish someone would please explain how Trump is still president. Number three. Give people the space to talk and they will give people the space to talk and they will come together as community.
0: If fill in the blank, then fill in the blank. <laughs>
1: If then. Um, if, uh, if we engage people in making the future, then they will have ownership of that future.
0: Number five. until right now, I totally forgot
1: <laughs> uh, until right now, I totally forgot that I'm not wearing shoes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Number six. If I were the mayor of Michael DeLashmet
1: Town, I would declare. If I was the mayor of Michael DeLashmet Town, I would declare uh every Monday free pizza day. Yes.
0: <laughs> I'm moving there. <laughs> um number seven. Whatever happened to? Hmm.
1: Whatever happened to. Uh <laughs> whatever happened to, um, respectful public discourse? Good
0: question. Number seven. Oh, that was number seven. Number eight. This is like a four part. So hang in there. Okay. I don't know what. I don't... <laughs> I don't know much.
1: I don't know what, uh, is I don't, I don't know. Oh, okay. I I thought more like I don't know much, but I know I love you. That's where I was headed for some reason. Like I don't know what. I don't know
0: what the day will bring. I don't know how.
1: I don't know how we'll get through. I don't know who. <laughs> I don't know who got us into this mess. <laughs> and I don't know when. I don't know when we're going to get out of it. All right.
0: Um number nine, I really, really hope. I really really
1: hope that God gets us through.
0: And number 10, if you ever have the chance to you should really definitely
1: mm, 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 mm. if you ever have the chance to visit a CC, you really definitely should. Oh, some travel dreams. We yeah. definitely use yeah. that. Every time I think of a CC, I think of two things one this uh this baroque church uh built on top of a of an old roman temple to minerva that has these co- roman colonnades inside and this like really baroque gorgeous kind of altar i think of that and i think of having a uh, prosciutto e melone on the rooftop of a terrace with julia and a bottle of wine uh, uh, years ago that is so romantic um it all
0: comes down to food and romance I always
1: love- always
0: Michael, you uh, first of all, you have a special rainbow lights that are dancing around you. I don't even want to know where they're coming from, but you are living in your own theologian party disco party.
1: I am. I, I know. I know.
0: I'm, I'll tell you another <laughs> time. But thank you. Thank and you. You are so worthy. Um, I think the barefoot theologian is is a potential for um, your brand here. Um, yeah, done. <laughs> But other than that, I appreciate you. I really value this time. And I feel we are so fortunate to have your presence and your voice and your wisdom within our St. Peter's community. So um, thank you. So take that to brunch.
1: I will. I will. Thank you.
0: <laughs> All right. Have a great day. And everyone out there watching, have a great day. ole, ole. Ole, ole, ole. Ole, <laughs> ole, ole, ole.